George. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his new book, Ronald Gruner looks into how the American presidents of the past century have continued to shape issues like immigration, health care, civil rights, tax policies, income distribution, globalization, and the growing role of government. The book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century, is a study of modern American history and the politics and personalities that have defined it, from Warren G. Harding through Franklin D. Roosevelt, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Barack Obama, to Donald Trump. It's published by Libratum Press and brings Ronald Gruner to our show now. Welcome. Uh, good, good afternoon, Leonard. Nice to talk with you, and uh, thanks for the invitation. Oh, well, this is fascinating stuff. Uh, you announce at the start that your book is completely devoid of politics. How is that possible? Don't all administrations have to deal with political battles and intrigue? Well, they do, but I, uh, I chose not to deal so much with the battles themselves, but with the results and the outcome of those battles to focus on that because, you know, the battles are really a, a means to an end. The end is how it affects us as Americans and citizens whether that's economically or in terms of foreign relations or uh, civil discourse. Uh, those are the things I tried to focus on, not, not the politics. I wasn't completely successful, I know that, but I did my best. Well, don't we often hear these days that there are two Americas, one blue and one red? In fact, hasn't Marjorie Taylor Greene called for a national divorce? Yes, she has. I read that. And it's interesting that you mention that because one of the motivations for me writing that book was um, I come in many respects from both parts of the United States, the blue and the red. I, I was born and raised in a small town in Oklahoma called Ponca City. And as you know, Oklahoma is a very red state. And I grew up in a red state with many good friends still there. But I spent 40 years in Massachusetts working in the computer business as my career. And Massachusetts, as you know, is uh, one of the, uh, the bluest of the blue states. So I have friends and acquaintances in both and oftentimes uh, I hear their viewpoints, which are very strongly in conflict. So I thought maybe I could write a book that in some ways try to bring people together in terms of how we as a country have evolved over the last 100 years. So it's a shame to see us uh, talking about a national divorce. Um, but uh, a lot of these issues are not new that we're dealing with today. But haven't party politics been a part of U.S. history from the start? Uh, what were George Washington's thoughts about that? You mentioned well, that in the book. <laughs> Yes, I do. Early on, Washington was uh, very disappointed when uh, the two political parties uh, arose um, with respect to uh, Hamilton and Jefferson. Uh, one was a Federalist Party, one was a essentially a states' rights party, where Alexander Hamilton was focused on uh, the Federalist Party and focused on uh, more power for the federal government than a Jefferson uh, with the states' rights parties felt comfortable with. And those uh, two became really active enemies politically uh, within a few years of the of the birth of the United States as a nation, which uh, disappointed Washington. He actually wrote a letter to both of those gentlemen begging them to, uh, to, to tone down the fight and even disband the party. He wasn't successful during that. So we've had those from day one, and uh, uh, it's not new. Well, you're not a presidential historian. You've been a computer engineer and the founder and CEO of three successful technology companies over your 40-year career. What role has politics played or, or the changing politics of America played in the businesses you were involved with? Well, that's an interesting question. I never been asked anything quite like that. I, I was in the uh, technology business uh, 
I started three companies in the early 80s, uh, uh, a small supercomputer company. Uh, in the 90s, um, an internet company. And uh, about eight years ago, um, uh, an analytics company in the legal sector. So I really wasn't really involved in, in politics in, in any of those. I think the closest uh, politics, and it really wasn't politics that touched my company, was uh, my middle company, shareholder.com. And we were providing information for shareholders of large public companies. And uh, the SEC passed a regulation called Regulation FD for fair disclosure, which essentially said all shareholders, individual shareholders as well as institutional shareholders, must receive the same information, including on quarterly conference calls. And that really opened up the market for us. But other than that, we my companies haven't really been affected by by politics. And Does, that wasn't really a good example of politics. That was basically regulation. Doesn't every generation tend to believe they live in unique times, although immigration, health care, civil rights, tax policy, income distribution, globalization, and the evolving role of government all had their roots in earlier presidencies um, and continue to, to affect us today? That's certainly true. Uh, just thinking about, you know, the, the present situation that we're in and here in the United States and the divisive that we have. I mean, uh, a lot of us baby boomers can remember the 1960s when the country was uh, perhaps even more divided. We had three horrible political assassinations, uh, John Kennedy, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. We had riots in all the major cities, both riots against the Vietnam War and race riots. Uh, the, the country was uh, we had terrorist bombings. Uh, by uh, Americans and not outside terrorists. Um, so it was very divided back then. So a lot of the things we're going through now were something we had just uh, within, uh, within a generation. But uh, immigration is an example that uh, is something we're dealing with and we haven't dealt with very successfully in the last 10 years, that's for sure. But uh, immigration laws and conflict over immigration have existed since at least well, uh, even going way back to uh, 1792, thinking out loud in terms of the Naturalization Act of 1792, they essentially said only free white uh, people could be naturalized. So if you came to the United States, if you weren't born here and you came to the United States and you spent 10 years here productively, unless you were white and free, you could not become a U.S. citizen. So that issue started way back in the 1790s. But you address it with the first president you write about here, Warren G. Harding, because uh, when he was president, it was a time of public suspicion of immigrants because they might be socialists or communists. Uh, we're, we're hearing similar arguments being used today by some immigration opponents about other kinds of people. But weren't most of the immigrants barred by the Emergency Quota Act that Harding signed in 1921 Italians and Eastern European Jews? That's correct, Leonard. You, uh, uh, you know your history well. There were two uh, immigration acts, one in 1921 under Harding and one in 1924 under Harding's successor, Coolidge. And that's exactly what they did. At the time, the immigrants that people were most concerned about in the early 1920s, frankly, were Southern Europeans, primarily from Italy and the Southern European countries and from the Eastern European countries, essentially Jews fleeing the Soviet Union after the takeover by the communists. Mm. And so they were flooding into the country and the people were concerned about that. And so those, those two immigration acts in 21 and 24 were designed to drastically cut immigration from Southern Europe and Eastern Europe in 21 and 24. Now, you start your book with a look at the much maligned presidency of Warren G. Harding. Um, 
is uh, did he did he represent some kind of a break with his predecessors, people like Woodrow Wilson? Well, uh, we're not talking about politics, but Wilson was a Democrat and Harding was a Republican. He did break in that. Uh, Woodrow Wilson very much advocated uh, the League of Nations after World War One, and that was to bring the United States into the community of nations around the world. And uh, having been through World War One and lost 117,000 soldiers in 18 months, many Americans, very likely most Americans, were not interested in having America play an active role in European um, issues. And so Harding's position was basically said we should not join the League of Nations, and we did not join the League of Nations. He was very different from Woodrow Wilson in that respect. That's correct. His campaign slogan during the 1920 presidential campaign was a return to normalcy. Uh, was that because the country was return, was recovering from the impact of the First World War and the Spanish flu? And There were, there were three things going on that the country was recovering from. One was obviously the Spanish flu that killed 650,000 Americans in a short period of time, less than two years. One was World War One, where we lost 117,000 people. And the other I think he was discussing was uh, we had had progressive uh, presidents, starting with Teddy uh, Roosevelt, Taft, and then Wilson, passing many progressive laws in terms of uh, deregulating uh, uh, industry, breaking up industry and things of that nature. And there was a backlash beginning to happen in the late 19 te the teens and the early 20s. And that was what he was referring to, that we need to – slow things down, calm down, recover from the Spanish flu in World War I, and return to normalcy. And that's what he, he had the personality, the calming personality to do that. He did a good job of that. Well, he, had, he, he won with over 60% of the popular vote, the highest percentage since the evolution of the two-party system. But didn't he get into politics somewhat by accident, beginning when he needed a shoe shine? Uh, well, that was uh, he was recognized um, early on as being a you know presidential temper potentially because he had a uh, a great personality. Uh, he had a uh, he was a relatively a good speaker, very good, very attractive, and kind of grew into politics uh, because his wife was able to take over the family newspaper, which she did a much better job. Florence Harding did than he had done, so he had the freedom to initially move up uh, as a senator and then get elected in a smoky room in, in Chicago uh, for the presidential candidate for the uh, for the Republican Party. And uh, he was a long shot at the time, but he won by a huge margin. What was his position on segregation and racial inequities? Didn't he say, whether you like it or not, unless our democracy is a lie, you must stand for equality? So he supported things like an anti-lynching bill. Yes, he was very progressive in that regard. He went to uh, Birmingham, Alabama, um, uh, six months after the, uh, the, the the massacre of blacks in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, and went to Birmingham, Alabama, and, and essentially made the speech you just paraphrased, essentially saying that unless we respect all races, black and white, and they all have the same freedoms, we're truly not a country and we're not a democracy. And he did that. He was the first sitting president to go into the Deep South, namely Birmingham, Alabama, and make that speech. He was booed on one side and cheered on the other side with a crowd. I believe it was 100,000 people, a huge crowd. Well, the, um, the KKK was already quite active at that time, wasn't it? It had resurged uh, starting about 1917, 1916 um, with the uh, movie that inspired it, The Birth of a Nation, that the second half promoted the Ku Klux Klan 
very strongly, and that revived the Ku Klux Klan, which had been dormant since about 1880. So yes, the Ku Klux Klan was growing, and at one point had become a major factor, uh, like Harding had adopted the phrase America first. Harding ran on, there was a first president to run on the campaign slogan, along with a return to normalcy, America first, because of his isolationist views. And shortly after that, the Ku Klux Klan picked up that phrase, America first, for focusing on isolation and putting America's objectives first over others, uh, other countries. And it's still with us. Uh, it was brought up during the Trump administration. Now, uh, so many of these, the things that we uh, talk about today began back then. For example, his Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, uh, revolutionized the nation's taxation policies in 21 when he declared that the best way to stimulate an economy is through policies that encourage investment in factories, innovation, and training. And to, he called it scientific taxation, but now we call it supply-side economics. That's correct. Uh, many people uh, who are the current generation think that Arthur Laffer, the, uh, the, the economist, invented supply-side economics with the Laffer curve, but mm. uh, that was a concept that Andrew Mellon had promoted in his book called Taxation in 1924. And the whole idea was that you can actually collect more taxes within a range um, by reducing tax, tax rates, encouraging people to pay taxes as avoid them. And he promoted that concept, which he called scientific taxation. But like you point out, we call supply-side economics. Well, and that was quite successful in the 1920s. One of the reasons, Leonard, was because they were bringing taxes down from 90% down to 70 then 50%, and then very briefly 25%, uh, as opposed to if we bring taxes down from, say, 30% to 20 or 10, you don't have the same impact as opposed to starting at a much higher level. Although his administration was, just, he, his part of the administration was just two and a half years, um, lots of scandals, right? There was the several members of the Ohio gang became involved in financial scandals. Uh, the Teapot Dome scandal, uh, apparent malfeasance at the U.S. Department of Justice, some of which ended in prison terms and a suicide. Um, can we say that every presidency that followed Harding's was as tumultuous? No, not by a long shot. Uh, but those scandals broke out. They occurred while Harding was in office, obviously, for two and a half years. Um, Harding was never involved in any way uh, and never implicated in any of those financial scandals. Uh, the extortion uh, during prohibition with bootleggers, uh, the Teapot Dome stand, uh, scandal, which basically gave two large oil companies the right to drill oil in the Navy Oil Reserve uh, after paying a huge bribe to the Secretary of Interior. And, of course, the other thing that really tarnished his career, I mean, his, his, his legacy uh, after he died was in 1928. Uh, a woman by the name of uh, Nan uh, Noonan came out and wrote a book called mm. The President's Daughter, which uh, she claimed, and she was correct after DNA tests 70 years later, that he had fathered a child while he was a senator, and that shocked the nation. So his legacy was badly tarnished, uh, but those things developed after he had died in August of 23. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI is Ronald Gruner. His book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century from Libratum Press. 
Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, Harding was followed by Calvin Coolidge and then Herbert Hoover. Uh, don't Herbert Hoover's positions on individualism continue to influence the debate over the role of, of government in education, health care, and social programs? Yes, absolutely. Uh, like uh, Andrew Mellon, who was in the cabinet of Harding, uh, Hoover was the Secretary of Commerce under Harding and Coolidge, and uh, wrote a book called Rugged Individualism. And you can really trace uh, today's uh, Libertarian Party, the idea of American exceptionalism, the idea of uh, the rugged individual being the essence of America, you can trace that back to Herbert Hoover, uh, promoting the idea of rugged individualism. And that's the legacy that we have to get, uh, we've have for the last 100 years. Well, didn't from, uh, Will Rogers come up with the phrase trickle down in response to Hoover's policies? Well, no, trickle down. Uh, had, of course, uh, Andrew Mellon uh, had uh, promoted the idea that if you cut taxes on the wealthy, they'll have additional money to invest in business and innovation. And that's the original idea uh, came from uh, that the term trickle was first used by Andrew Mellon in his book that that those funds would trickle down into new investments. And uh, Will Rogers picked on that in one of his radio broadcasts in 1931. Now, uh, the, the whole matter of health care continues and how to deal with it continues to be uh, an issue today. Um, where did Hoover stand? Does a government mask mandate during a pandemic violate individual liberty in in Hoover's case? Well, for three years into Hoover's presidency, he would have been very much against uh, any form of medicine run by the by the government. He was very much. Um, a, a very small government, libertarian type of president. He changed his position the last year of his presidency as the, the nation failed to recover from the Depression, but that was too late. Uh, but he, his whole life, including the, the 30 to over 30 years that he lived after his presidency, advocated for small government, just like the former president, Calvin Coolidge, had. And then he was followed by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, whose positions were totally opposite. Uh, that's correct. Roosevelt can be summarized uh, during the Depression with his uh, his phrase that if 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 uh, industry isn't hiring, the government will. And uh, that's really what he did uh, when he came into office in 1933, uh, because employment had risen to almost 25 uh, percent. Nothing was changing. Even Calvin Coolidge uh, said in 19, uh, 1933, I see no signs of hope. So there was no hope. So Roosevelt came in and said, somebody's got to do something. Industry's not doing it, so the government will. And that's what happened under under Roosevelt in terms of uh, the first few years of his uh, administration. Doesn't every generation tend to believe they live in unique times? I think so. That's just the nature of people. Weren't the, the roots of today's Ukraine crisis established when NATO uh with President Clinton's encouragement, chose to expand eastward after the fall of the Soviet Union? Well, that's an excellent question, Leonard, and I tend to believe that's absolutely the case. Um, if you look at what happened after World War II under Truman, Truman uh, fought a lot of insiders who were hardliners who wanted to basically turn Germany into a, um, uh, an agricultural country and de-industrialize uh, it. Hmm. He fought that, and as a result, through the Marshall Plan and other in my opinion, enlightened attitudes and policies, Germany and Japan became our greatest, two of our greatest allies, and they still are. Well, parts of but, Germany. Germany was split up for a while. 
Well, Germany was split up, but once it rejoined, it became an ally, a very strong ally. I think um, I'm perhaps wrong about this, but I think many East Germans, even in the communist rule, had strong sympathies for the United States. Uh, they loved listening to the voice of America and American rock music, that's for sure. Didn't George F. Kennan predict in 1997 that expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era? He said... It's doubly unfortunate considering the total lack of any necessity for this move. Well, that's that's correct. George Keenan was really the top diplomat in the State Department going back to 1946 when he wrote a long paper predicting that the Soviet Union was going to become very aggressive in terms of trying to uh, spread communism around the world. And his policies helped shape NATO going uh, starting in 46. But once the Soviet Union fell, he was very, very much against NATO expansion, and he he uh, uh, stated a number of times that if NATO expands eastward towards Russia, that's going to cause problems. We should embrace Russia, not expand eastward. Matter of fact, why do we need NATO at this point? NATO was formed as a counter to Russia in the Warsaw Pact, and he was right about that, in my opinion. How important was the way we were involved in the wars in Korea and Vietnam uh, to our current approach? To what's going on? Well, um, do, do I think, you think the that issue it's, you refer, think it's caused us think, to, to think about is, is kind of like being on the side, but still being involved. Yes, I think you're referring to what involvement should we have in the Ukraine yes. at this point? Um, and we can look to uh, Korea and Vietnam, perhaps uh, for lessons on that. Uh, that's a, that's a really difficult question, I, I think, in terms of uh, um, is it in our best interest to stop that kind of aggression from Russia into a, a sovereign nation? Uh, I tend to think it is. Many people disagree with that. Um, what happened in Vietnam it was significantly different than, in my opinion, what's happening in Ukraine. And uh, just very, very briefly, uh, it, it, in most respects, uh, Vietnam was a uh, started out as a war of freedom for liberty after uh, they had requested that the United States insist to France that the Vietnamese be given their uh, their independence uh, after World War II. We did not do that. Ho Chi Minh then became the leader of Vietnam. It got split up after the French left, developed into a civil war back on one side on the north by the communists and us on the south. And it was uh, just a debacle that could have been avoided if we had have insisted France give up Vietnam after World War II. We didn't do that. Um, the Ukraine is a different kind of situation. It's a shame that it's developed because, uh, once, like, like you pointed out, NATO expansion was a primary factor, I think, forcing Russia, at least in their minds, that they needed to do something to stop that movement towards the east uh, with, uh, with the NATO nations. Well, to some degree, don't you think that we still are feeling the legacy of the tensions with the Soviet Union, even though there is no Soviet Union anymore? Well, um, uh, I don't know about that. Uh, I mean, because I mean, people I, are talking about a new Cold War. Oh, well, they absolutely are talking about that. That's happening now. Whether we felt the tensions with Russia in the 1990s that we felt with the Soviet, uh, the Soviet Union uh, in the 50s, I don't believe that was the case. I think there was many, many efforts to try to bring the two countries uh, and nations together in many respects. Um, 
So uh, I don't know if that was the case. But right now, of course, it's beginning of another Cold War with Russia and Putin moving uh, westward like he has in Ukraine in that brutal war. I mean, that's a terrible situation. And that's going to force a, a beginning of a, another Cold War. God forbid something worse. Well, it's led a number of countries to decide to join NATO, countries that had not joined until now. That's correct, like Sweden. And I think Finland may be changing their mind on that. But uh, yes, they had they had tried their best to be neutral for uh, 40, 50 years. And uh, now with uh, Russia moving westward, uh, they say, uh, and that's understandable, that we uh, we as a a country on the borders of the Soviet, of, a former, of this former Soviet Union uh, need to be protected by an alliance, and that's motivating uh, other countries to want to come in, which is just going to make the situation worse, probably. President Eisenhower played a role in America's involvement in the Middle East in 1953 when he orchestrated a CIA-led covert coup to overthrow Iran's democratically elected government after a dispute over oil profits. Are we seeing the legacy of that today? Yes, we are. That was one of his mistakes, uh, in my opinion. During World War II, he had worked with OSS, which was the precursor to the CIA, uh, to uh, go behind enemy lines and stir up all kinds of issues and even change governments uh, at, at, during World War II. He used that same approach in Iran when the Iranians nationalized uh, the uh, Persian, uh, nationalized the uh, British British. Persian oil com uh, company uh, when uh, the Iranians wanted to increase the percentage of royalties they received from Britain for oil profits. And uh, they nationalized the, co the, the company. And, and then Churchill went to, Rose uh, to Eisenhower and said, we have to do something to change this and uh, convinced Eisenhower they needed to. So they managed a covert coup where they basically replaced the democratically elected prime minister with the Shah of Iran, who was the son of the former king, and he became an American puppet, which seemed to work well for 30 years. But then, as you know, he was overthrown in the late 1970s, and uh, Iran became a mortal enemy of the United States uh, when they at one time an ally. We should have stayed out of that, in my opinion. That's how we got involved in the Middle East. It was of oil. We would have been much better off paying a dollar more for gas than having all the issues we've had the last 60 years in the Middle East. Because it isn't just Iran. There's also Iraq. <laughs> in fact, we've had tensions with so many of the countries there, Afghanistan. And don't forget that uh, 18 of the 19 terrorists that did the 9-11 bombing came from Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So do you think that's all of the legacy of, of the, those uh, of those policies back then, or or is continuing policies over the years? Well, that's certainly how it got started uh, in in the Middle East. In terms of uh, it was all over oil and, and maximizing oil profits flowing to Britain and later on to the United States and reducing the price of oil. Um, and so that's where much of that turmoil has come from. Um, so yes, I tend to agree. It was. Ronald Reagan was committed to free and open trade and predicted today's trade tensions in 1988 when he cautioned, quote, we should beware of the demagogues who are ready to declare a trade war against our friends, all while cynically waving the American flag. What was he <laughs> yes. speaking about specifically there? Well, at the time, he was talking about Japan, which was the uh, the major threat to uh, uh, American trade. Uh, you know, Japan had really uh, recovered strongly from World War II, uh, with our help, our very generous help, 
and was beginning to dominate consumer electronics and automobiles. And so uh, firms like Zenith that used to make the world's best televisions were eclipsed by Sony, for example, and Chevrolet was being eclipsed by Toyota. And that's what Reagan was talking about. Well, it's interesting that uh, all of these presidents uh, – can be remembered in negative or positive ways, depending on what part of their policies you're looking at. And it's also interesting, I think, that uh, that Republican uh, presidents sometimes had policies that Democrats like and vice versa. That's, that's correct. And every president uh, made a uh, uh, made some mistakes, uh, some serious mistakes uh, uh, often, and uh, also uh, did some very, very good things. Um, I mean, Jimmy Carter is an example of a president who has been very much in the news the last few weeks. And uh, many people view his presidency as a failed presidency, which uh, uh, he he uh, he made mistakes and he had uh, some very negative issues, but he had some very positive issues, too. A deregulation. He did more deregulation than any president in the last 100 years. He deregulated all of transportation, starting with airlines and their railroads, mm. trucking, uh, energy conservation, he pioneered. Uh, also, uh, inflation had been in a runaway situation with uh, during the 1970s, and he basically put Paul Volcker in to run the Fed and told Volcker, no matter what is necessary, cut inflation, and we've got to stop inflation. So Volcker raised interest rates and finally strangled inflation and we've had low inflation for almost 50 years until the last year and a half and much of that credit goes to uh, jimmy carter well how important is the way uh, a person comes across for example i've interviewed a number of presidents um and jimmy carter was the one i liked the best he just seemed to be the nicest person well i think uh the, the two thoughts about uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, I think but he wasn't personal, reelected. <laughs> no, because, uh, well, he, he there were two things, uh, several things that were happening. The, the, the country was in a terrible economic situation, uh, not in, in a small extent due to Paul Volcker raising interest rates, which Carter supported, even though he knew it might cost him the election. He was de- dealing with the uh, Iranian hostages in, in the embassy. And uh, he had made the so-called Malay speech, which was unpopular. So he was not a great communicator politically. I think on a one-on-one level, he would be very, very sincere and honest and a delight to chat with. But he was not a great communicator. He spent his career starting in the Naval Academy. And I don't mean this in a negative way. I mean this in a positive way, teaching Sunday school. So he communicated in terms of values and morals, okay? Whereas the Reagan, who won by a landslide, was a great communicator. He was called a great communicator. He started in radio, television. He was a corporate sponsor and communicator. And he just did a much better job communicating the positive uh, that people related to and needed so badly after the stagflation of the 70s that Carter wasn't able to do. You're listening to Lended Low Paid at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You're enjoying my conversation with Ronald Gruner, G-R-U-N-E-R. 
If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century. To do that, just go online to give2wbai.org. That's give and the number 2wbai.org. Or call 212-209-2950. 212-209-2950. During today's show, we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of London Lopate at large. And uh, since this is Women's History Month, we, um, we, if you become a BAI buddy for $50 or more or make a $100 contribution to WBAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as I give to you. It's, it's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the early days of community radio broadcasting in 1949 that's been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from BAI and our sister stations in the Pacific Radio Network. To take advantage of that, ask for the Women's History Collection when you call that number again, 212-209-2950, or go online to women.wbai.org to become a BAI buddy with Lopate at Large is your favorite show. And we return now to Ronald Gruner, whose book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century, is published by Liberatum Press. Now, you point out we're still debating the legacy of Donald Trump, and you ask, was Trump a worse president than the scorned Warren G. Harding? And you answer by saying it's too early to say it takes— Decades for history to render its judgment. But, well, didn't, can't it be argued that Trump attempted to overthrow a U.S. presidential campaign in order to retain power? No other president has done that. No, uh, that's correct. And uh, history's, uh, I don't believe, is going to forgive him for that. So that's uh, going to be probably the primary part of his legacy that's going to be remembered for generations. Because, like you say, nobody's, no president ever done that before. He continues to do that. But that's the worst thing you think that he did? He had, there were also scandals during his uh, presidency, but then again, there were scandals during any number of presidencies. That's, that's correct. Every, almost every presidency, with the exception of perhaps of, a, of a Eisenhower, for example, uh, had scandals. Um, and uh, Trump had scandals, but uh, I, I think the insurrection and the encouragement of the insurrection by uh, former President Trump. And then the the last two years uh, with the claim that the 2020 election was stolen after uh, people have and, and the courts have spent thousands of hours looking for evidence of that and nothing's come up to uh, to even suggest remotely that there was a scandal on the uh, uh, uh on the scale that you could overturn a presidential election. So those two things, the January 6th insurrection and the ongoing claims of a voter fraud and election fraud are going to be two negative legacies that are unique to Donald Trump. You've written about 17 American presidents in this book, covering every significant aspect of their presidency and the impact they had on the United States and the world at large. But there's no way we can get into detail about each one. But are there certain things that we should address for a little the little time we have left about Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, uh, the two Bushes, Obama, Clinton? <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about there. But a uh, question I'm often asked is, uh, 
you know, who is my favorite president? It's just like children. It's really impossible to say you have a favorite president when you're a biographer. But uh, certainly Harry Truman comes up to be one of the great presidents. Uh, he was a, a vice president under Franklin Roosevelt for only 82 days. And he was a relatively minor senator, uh, had been for over 10 years, but had had virtually no briefing by Roosevelt as to what Roosevelt's ideas were after the war, uh, when the war ended, or even he had no idea that atomic bomb existed. Yet he uh, he managed to uh, steer the United States very successfully, with one or two exceptions after World War II, and set the tone for kind of the international stage as well as the United States uh, as part of his presidency. His big mistake, uh, and that's not clear, it was a mistake he could have avoided, was the Korean War. Um, essentially, somehow disavowing or discouraging the Chinese who had just gone communist from that expansion um, uh, being encouraged by the Koreans going south and uh, crossing the border into South Korea, which then precipitated the Korean War, which still goes on. We have There's no peace treaty, as I'm sure you know. There's only a, uh, a ceasefire between the North and South Korea. Don't some of these presidents also go against what we would expect of them? For example, Lyndon Johnson, a Southerner, played a, a, a major role in in developing positive race relations in this country. Yes, he did, uh, and he had to, uh, switched positions on that in the in the late late mid to late 1950s. Um, he was born in Dirtport, Texas, uh, and was a school teacher for several years before he went into politics. And he had a real uh, feeling of empathy for the poor and the neglected. And when he uh, kind of by chance became president, uh, both in 1960 when he was elected as uh, vice president, and then after uh, Kennedy's uh, tragic uh, assassination, uh, he made civil rights and doing everything he could for neglected classes of people, whether that's in terms of medicine or uh, social security or uh, pensions of that nature. Uh, he pioneered that, uh, and he, that was not expected of a Southern uh, senator uh, until he did that. And then Nixon, he uh, changed immigration policy and made it easier for Asians to come to this country. I. I, I always thought that was a surprise. It was. They actually, the, uh, the Asians, um, that, that really changed in 1952. People don't realize it, but uh, up until 1952, virtually all Asians, with the exception of the Chinese, could not become naturalized citizens. So somebody from Japan or India, for example, could come to the United States, work hard, but could never become an American citizen. And what They'd was the argument for that? Um that really started, well, that started, like I said, in 1792. The uh, Asians weren't considered Caucasians. They weren't white. So it started then. And then, of course, you had the, the Exclusion Act of the Chinese in 1882. So there was a racial discrimination in the United States, really, up until 1952, when we allowed Asians to become naturalized. And so Nixon, why Nixon, of all the presidents, to sign that law? Was it just um, the time? Its time had come. I don't recall specifically, Leonard, what law that is. Hmm. I, I recall that uh, the law signed in 1952 regarding uh, Asians, but I'm maybe having a, no, a little of a, a brain fog here. Just refresh my memory. What well, actually, to. Uh, I, I'm. I don't remember the details, but I did a radio show on it a while <laughs> okay. back. So uh, I'm just uh, I, remembering that 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 was something that uh, we discuss. 
Well, well certainly uh, that happened during uh, the 1952 range. I'm trying to think uh, of what the Immigration uh, Act would have been during uh, under Nixon. Uh, I can't recall that. But to mention Nixon, Nixon would have been a great president in many respects if it had not have been for Watergate. Um, he opened up relations uh, and dethawed relations with the Soviet Union and China. Uh, he took uh, arguably the United States off the gold standard, which really allowed the economy to grow uh, untied to the gold standard, which uh, is somewhat debatable. I think most people agree was the right thing to do. Um, and uh, surprisingly enough, he uh, pioneered and really promoted uh, regulation for the environment. People forget how filthy the rivers were and the uh, oceans were. Uh, I came, I was in Boston for many years, and Boston Harbor was filthy for many years. Uh, and think about all the smog that Los Angeles and New York had. And he passed regulations and pioneered regulations to uh, form the EPA, for example, that really cleaned up the environment significantly to the point now we take it for granted and think perhaps we have too many regulations. That all happened under Nixon. What about the legacy of Gerald Ford? What did he do that has had a, a lasting impact? One of the primary things under Ford was um, there's two things that come to mind was, of course, he pardoned uh, the, the Vietnam War protesters and even those that went AWOL uh, who were in the service. So he pardoned those under certain restrictions. And that was very controversial at the time. That very likely cost him the election uh, was one aspect. And he pardoned Richard Nixon also. Uh, so that was one aspect that kind of dominated his presidency. Um, but the other thing that was a lost opportunity uh, early in his presidency, he established a very close relationship with Leonid Brezhnev, the uh, premier of the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, they both had played football, soccer in Brezhnev's case and American football in Ford's case. And they established a very close relationship. And Ford very much wanted to basically uh, bring about detente and de-escalate the Cold War. But a lot of hardliners on the right, uh, right wing of the uh, Republican Party, just to mention politics just for a second, were very much against that. They actually had banned the use of detente. They couldn't use that. And so it wasn't until Reagan developed a relationship with Gorbachev, similar to Ford's relationship with Brezhnev, that we had a thawing of the Cold War. But that could have happened under uh, George uh, Gerald Ford if he had more time and could have developed that relationship deeper and had been allowed to do that politically. But uh, some of the uh, things that happened during the Soviet Union continue to be uh, problems for the United States. Our relations with Afghanistan, for example. That, that kind of goes back um, to the Carter presidency. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole relationship with Afghanistan um, and even 9-11 um, arguably can be traced back to something called Operation Cyclone. In uh, 1978, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan to shore up a communist-leaning uh, government that had been democratically elected in Afghanistan. And in response, we secretly, through the CIA, began to support Afghanistan with arms and training and munitions uh, throughout the 1980s. But then that brought in other folks like Osama bin Laden, uh, who initially fought uh, alongside the, Af the Afghans, but became uh, uh, disenchanted with the involvement of the West, namely the United States in the Middle East. And he became radicalized. And out of that, we developed 9-11. So there is a thread between the Soviets invading Afghanistan, us responding, going into Afghanistan, and then the development of terrorism and anti-Americanism by those terrorists that extend even today. The Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. That's correct. 
Now, um, we haven't mentioned the, the two Bushes. Are they very similar? Well, like father, like son, they say in many respects. I think um, one aspect that regarding George W. Bush um, that uh, many people believe is that George W. Bush went into Iraq. And this may not be a fair comment, but it's one statement that's been made. And uh, there's some truth to it, I think. And that he went into Iraq uh, in 2003 primarily because his father, H.W. Bush, was criticized for really not basically uh, removing uh, Saddam Hussein during the Kuwait war. And that was a mistake. And uh, uh, the, the first Bush was criticized for that. And I think Bush number two, George W. Bush, went in to finish that job up. So that's one relationship between the two. Um, on the other hand, uh, economically, uh, George H.W. Bush, the first Bush, uh, raised taxes. It cost him the election after he said before he was elected, uh, read my lips, no new taxes. But as the deficit soared, uh, during his presidency, he felt it was necessary to cut that deficit and do that by raising taxes, which was very unpopular. It cost him the election. Um, George W. Bush did just the opposite. He inherited a huge surplus from uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton, and felt he could actually cut taxes. He cut taxes and increased spending. Those are two bad combinations and the deficit. It went from a surplus, a strong surplus, to a deficit within two years, and we haven't recovered since. So that was a bad mistake on his part, which was kind of the opposite of what his father did. And what legacy are we now experiencing as a result of the Obama administration? Was, well, was, his, uh, was he pretty much business as usual as a Democrat? Well, pretty much. He, uh, of course, with uh, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, um, they, they pushed that through really, really aggressively at the beginning of his uh, administration, even though we were in the uh, the height of the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, that uh, was probably a mistake. I'm not saying uh, Obamacare ultimately was not uh, perhaps the right thing to do, but uh, the nation was in, in a terrible state financially. And so that went, was pushed through Congress uh, with a, a lot, a lot of dissent and was still kind of dealing with that unpopular aspect of uh, Obamacare, um, and people are still fighting that. So that was probably the biggest mis single mistake he made during his administration, in my opinion. I think he could have done that in his second term uh, with a lot more support once the country was on a better footing financially. Uh, but that's more of a personal opinion rather than a historical observation. Although this is uh, about the 17 presidents from Harding to today, uh, you do also include a wide range of events uh, from other times. Shays Rebellion in 1786, the financial panic of 1907 that have altered history and shaped America. So our, I guess uh, there's really a continuum that we're discussing here. There is. There is. And uh, anybody who studies history is always a... Um, Intrigued by the threads that thre threads of history that go through history, you mentioned Shay's Rebellion. It's very possible that John Shay, who was a farmer in Massachusetts and had fought the Revolutionary War, uh, but had not been paid for his service, and actually had sold uh, scripts, which uh, were basically promissory notes, uh, to bankers in Boston, uh, who then cashed those in after raising taxes. He formed a rebe rebellion against the state of Massachusetts, which was put down. But that rebellion was what really motivated the Constitutional Convention uh, a year later, where uh, 
the founders of the country got together and said, the Articles of Confederation that we're currently living under are not workable. We can't raise taxes. We can't pay the debt. Uh, we can't even form a, a united our army to fight against outside intruders. So that's where the Constitutional Convention came from, motivated partly by Shays' Rebellion. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. We've run out of time. But I want to thank you so much for being on our show today, Ronald Gruner. His book, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century from Liberatum Press. Are you working on another book? Uh, yes, I am. I'm working on a book on COVID. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard your your uh, er, er, I heard the earlier speaker before I uh, was on the air, and it's a very interesting but controversial topic. So I'm going to try to give that an objective, nonpartisan treatment. Um, I'll do the best I can, at least. Well, thank you again. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program, would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI because we're going through a really rough time right now. COVID has played a major role in it. And uh, we are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give in the number 2 WBAI.org because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Located Lords right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, We the Presidents, How American Presidents Shaped the Last Century by Ronald Gruder. So why not make that call now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And we also hope that you'll consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. If you become a BAI buddy for for $15 or more or during Women's History Month or make a $100 contribution to BAI, you can receive the Women's History Collection as our gift to you. It's a great 79-hour collection of restored audio recordings dating back to the earliest days of community radio broadcasting in 1949. And they've been culled from over six seasons of weekly radio programs from BAI and our sister stations in the Pacifica Radio Network. So ask for the Women's History Collection when you call us at 212-209-2950, or in this case, go online to women.wbai.org and become a BAI buddy with Located at Large as your favorite show. And I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely speech free speech radio. And we are the only station in the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. Uh, keep us alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support, okay? And uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you real soon.